If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On an August evening in 1765, a mob descended on the house of Thomas Hutchinson, Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts. The horde tore apart Hutchinson's mansion, from wall panelling to roof tiles. The following day, Hutchinson wrote, nothing remained but bare walls and floor. What was fueling the anger behind this attack? And who had incited such a violent destruction of property? I'm Eleanor Evans, and welcome to episode two of Boston Tea Party Igniting a Revolution. This episode, we'll be delving into the often shadowy actions of the group behind the attack on Hutchinson's house that night, a group known as the Sons of Liberty. You'll be hearing from leading experts on the group's organisation, the stories of its key figures, and the sometimes brutal tactics they adopted on the road to the Boston Tea Party in 1773. When Thomas Hutchinson sat down to supper in his grand Boston mansion that August night, he was in a difficult position. Here's professor and author Benjamin Karp. Thomas Hutchinson comes from an old Massachusetts family, and he succeeds Francis Bernard as governor in 1770, I believe. And he's the acting governor for a while, and then he formally becomes governor. And he does his duty but he is not well-loved among a lot of the people in Boston. The Otis and Adams families in particular really despise him. And he's in a very uncomfortable position because Parliament is asking him to enforce a lot of unpopular laws. And he wants to do his duty, but all around him, you know, the Bostonians don't want to comply. So he is really in a stuck position. You know, he knows that he can't use extreme measures to enforce these unpopular acts, but then he also has to answer to Parliament for why these acts aren't being enforced. So he's, he's a man in a very difficult position, but he also isn't making a very good case for himself because he's very rigid and inflexible. Hutchinson's rigidity in response to the Stamp Act that we heard about last episode had proven particularly unpopular. Though he personally believed that the Stamp Act should be repealed, his record of enforcing government levies meant that he was branded a supporter of the tax and became a focus of colonists' anger. On the evening of the 26th of August... Hutchinson was warned that a mob was approaching his house. He told his children to escape to a secure place and fled. He watched from a safe vantage point where he, quote, 
had been but a few minutes before the hellish crew fell upon my house with the rage of devils and in a moment with axes split down the door and entered. Days before the attack, Samuel Adams, a lead member of a Bostonian group calling themselves the Sons of Liberty, had written that the group was, quote, animated with a zeal for their country then upon the brink of destruction and resolved at once to save her. Let's get a little closer to this group. Here's Benjamin. The Sons of Liberty, it's actually a term coined by a member of parliament, Isaac Barre, who is an ally of the colonists and had fought alongside them during the Seven Years' War. And he coins this phrase, you know, that the colonists are, are true sons of liberty. At first, it's a formal term for voluntary organizations that were protesting against the Stamp Act. But over time, it becomes kind of a catch-all phrase for people who were actively resisting the laws of parliament. So uh, sometimes it's used as a kind of broad brush term to refer to the, the people who were leading the resistance. But in 1765, 1766, it may have referred to a more specific group of men in a variety of American towns meeting in taverns and and planning the best way to halt the implementation of the Stamp Act. And there was a group in Boston called the Loyal Nine, which was kind of leaders of the community, including Samuel Adams, probably the most famous of them, but but other men in the community who were planning, communicating, placing arguments in newspapers and pamphlets. And then um, they get together and they start to attract more and more community support. And they start calling themselves the Sons of Liberty. And that word liberty is a shout out to what I said, British liberty. It's liberty of British men, although there were, of course, women involved in the resistance movement as well. You can, I think, on purpose hear the term the Sons of Liberty as a male organization. Basically, it's when you can see, as I said, something that is kind of explicitly political. They they had a series of ideological arguments. They helped to publish pamphlets. They also started corresponding with groups calling themselves Sons of Liberty in other colonies. And so it becomes kind of a, the organized wing of a political movement rather than just a series of events that are resisting various taxes. How did the Sons of Liberty unite? And what sort of actions were they carrying out? The New Yorkers actually, I believe, started the Sons of Liberty. You had a few men who traveled through Connecticut up to Boston, meeting with other tavern groups and saying, hey, maybe we ought to have a little bit of intercolonial coordination about our protest against Parliament. But over time, there's a much broader group known as the Sons of Liberty. Uh, But really what the Sons of Liberty are, are a series of interlocking voluntary organizations, the New England Caucus, the Boston Committee of Correspondence. Some have suggested that the Freemasons, Right, that there are just a number of different voluntary organizations that with different personnel, but sometimes overlapping personnel that coordinate with Boston's representatives in the legislature and with uh, street protesters. How are these disparate groups organizing, agitating? How much are they in communication with each other or are they doing like, overlapping work? It's not clear sometimes. These things can be a little bit shadowy. I mean, some of these groups record their minutes and publish things in newspapers, but others seem to operate in smoke-filled back rooms. John Adams comments on being at a a meeting of one of these groups where they picked all the town officers and cooked up items to publish in the newspaper that week, et cetera, et cetera. So we don't have a a ton of documentation of their activities, right? A, A lot of it was clandestine in nature. Clandestine though many of its meetings were, the group's growing role in tandem with violent attacks and unrest raised concerns across the Atlantic. Just 12 days before the attack on Hutchinson's mansion, an effigy of Boston's stamp tax agent had been hanged 
stamped on, decapitated and burned. Wanting to get a little closer to this group and their aims, I asked Benjamin to introduce us to Samuel Adams and some other leading figures in the Sons of Liberty. Samuel Adams has a unique position as both one of Boston's representatives to the General Assembly and as the leader of the Boston Committee of Correspondents, right? So he has both a voluntary role and a more formal role in organizing protests. And so a lot of historians kind of focus on him and and think of him as a rabble rouser or a puppet master or a wire puller. Uh, I don't think that that's quite true. I mean, he's a respected leader, but he was also very good at having contacts among the middle classes and working classes. And, you know, he knew who to talk to. And he also wrote very well and knew how to rally people that way. But that doesn't mean that other Bostonians weren't pursuing their own interests, right? So it's not as if he snaps his fingers and everybody just does what he says. Instead, he's very well positioned and he's able to get a lot of people who had their own interests within Boston to agree with him about the right time and the, and the nature of the protests to launch. Some of the other leading figures were Dr. Joseph Warren, Dr. Thomas Young, William Molyneux, John Hancock, right? Some, uh, some names that are still very well known to us, uh, James Otis, John Adams, right? Uh, a lot of these were leading Sons of Liberty in Massachusetts whose names appear over and over again at the head of important meetings or signing their names to important documents. So again, trying to make contact throughout the colony of Massachusetts, make contacts with like-minded people in other colonies, and who also had a lot of local leadership skills in a time and place where people tended to defer to their betters, but not always, right? There was also plenty of pushback from the lower classes as well. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. 
Could we go a, a little more, I suppose, into the, the protest? How were people spreading word, pamphleting? How were people rallying to this cause? Parliament passes a law and people in Boston will hear about it. Then what happens, right? They publish articles in the newspapers. They put up broadsides all over town. They might publish a more lengthy pamphlet with a more sustained argument about why this law from Parliament was unconstitutional. The word gets out, right? A newspaper will then be on a table in a tavern where men could discuss it together. Word of mouth will spread it throughout town. Bostonians and New Englanders in general were very literate people. And so the printed word has an effect. Written correspondence throughout the colony of Massachusetts would certainly have an effect as well. But it's also still a face-to-face society and oratory or people having conversations with one another is also going to be an important way to spread the message that there needs to be some kind of protest against what Parliament is doing. I asked Sarah Churchwell about communication between the colonies. So this principle is clearly taking hold. As you say, it's radicalising people in different parts of the colonies. Can we say how news would have been spread? I think people imagine Paul Revere on horseback delivering messages around at this time. You know, how is the word being spread? The Paul Revere image isn't completely wrong. That is how word spread. And when there was something very urgent, they did just jump on a horse and send a messenger as fast as you could to the nearest big city. Boston was not the biggest city in America at that point, but neither was New York. In fact, Philadelphia was the largest and richest city in America at that point in time. So it was basically those three cities in the Northeast that were coordinating. And further north, they weren't even colonies yet, let alone part of this movement. So really, the epicenter of all of this is Boston. Pennsylvania and New York. But we mustn't leave the southern colonies out of it. Virginia is an incredibly important part of this. They have a slightly different import-export position here. But Virginia, of course, this colony and eventually state that would send Washington, Jefferson, and Madison to Congress. And so three of the great founding fathers, as they used to be known, framers, as we now like to call them in non-gendered terms, were from the colony of Virginia, which was the wealthiest colony of them all. So together, they're really the heart of this movement. Now, Virginia was much further away, took a lot longer for news to travel. But between Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, news could move pretty fast if you got somebody in a fast horse and told that story. The other thing is that there were newspapers across the U.S. by this point. There isn't a national press, of course, and there isn't a national distribution. But all of the colonies have very active press. And also broadsides were really important. Pamphlets were really important. The pamphlet Common Sense, which would be published a couple of years after the Boston Tea Party in 1776 by Thomas Paine, who was an Englishman. He was not born in the colonies, but had immigrated to the colonies and published Common Sense. And that pamphlet flew off the printer's presses and just rapidly scattered across the country. So pamphlets and broadsides could move very quickly. News through letters could move quite quickly. They didn't only travel by horseback, they traveled by boat. So if you really wanted to get a story, something news quickly or people moved quickly from Boston to Virginia, you would go by boat. So you could also travel around the coast that way and distribute information. So it didn't move instantly the way that we're accustomed to, obviously, but it didn't take months either for news to get around. Within a matter of days or weeks at most, you would start to know what was happening in the colonies. You didn't know what was happening in Europe. That did take months to get across and wouldn't always make it. But they had a pretty good network of communication set up, particularly among the Sons of Liberty in New England, because they were very strong networks, kinship networks, as well as as commercial networks. And so they had lots of kind of middlemen who were constantly traveling around on family business who would continue to share the information. What other tactics were the Sons of Liberty using? 
One of the tactics that the Sons of Liberty use in response to the Townsend Acts is that they try to establish intercolonial boycotts. They try to get agreements among their merchants to say, do not import any British goods as long as these acts remain in effect. What we hope that that will accomplish is that British merchants will get upset and they will directly lobby their friends in Parliament and Parliament will repeal these acts. Now, the problem with these boycotts is they're very delicate arrangements. It requires a lot of cooperation to make sure that the merchants of Boston and Newport and New York and Philadelphia are all cooperating with one another in order to prevent British merchants from doing business. And it lasts for a while, but then in 1770, these non-importation agreements kind of collapse, and you have uh, the Sons of Liberty in the various towns blaming one another for this collapse. But in enforcing these boycotts, another darker tactic was adopted by the Sons of Liberty the painful, humiliating punishment of tarring and feathering. This involved pouring or brushing hot pine tar, usually used for sealing ship sails and hulls, over the subject's body. Then the victim, perhaps a customs official or someone who had broken a boycott, would be covered with feathers and often paraded on a cart or tied to a rail. Here's Sarah Purcell. There were stamp collectors who were tarred and feathered, which is kind of sounds like a quaint term these days, tarred and feathered, but it, it involved applying hot tar to someone's bare skin and then putting feather or other kinds of material on it that would mean that their skin would essentially be ripped off in the process of trying to remove that tar or they might be burned. So it was a very, a very severe kind of punishment. Um, that was the kind of punishment that was often implied or threatened against people who broke the boycotts of various products. Like, you could risk a public sanction, public tarring and feathering. An unlucky few suffered further agony and indignation when the feathers stuck to them were set alight, searing the skin. Between 1766 and 1776, more than 70 incidents of tarring and feathering were recorded across the American colonies. Here's Sarah Churchwell. There were these tensions that had been inflaming over the last five years in particular when many people had been harmed and people had been shot and killed in the famous Boston Massacre. And the importers of the tea had been very seriously threatened. And there were threats of tarring and feathering. There were threats of lynching. There were really serious threats against their safety. They actually fled before the Tea Party took place outside of the confines of Boston because they knew that violence was brewing and they were likely to be at the heart of it. Violence was brewing kind of like tea. What did leaders of the Sons of Liberty make of this escalating violence? The middle class and upper class protesters of Boston really wanted things to remain peaceful. And so it's not clear when violent protests break out, right? A lot of the times then these middle class and upper class people will be like, wait, no violence, that's hurting the cause. Samuel Adams says things like that. They don't want the resistance against Parliament's acts to look bad. And so they, you know, they poo-poo violence when it happens. It's not clear. Are they saying that out of one side of their mouth and then coordinating these violent protests on the other? That's really not clear and, and maybe unfair to make that assumption. So, you know, what you can see the Boston protest movement as really three interlocking parts. The upper class people in the legislature who really have the most influence in government and are going to use the most formal methods of protest. Middle class people joining a series of voluntary organizations, meeting in taverns and organizing boycotts and providing other sorts of coordination. And then working class people who, when they feel really upset, are more likely to take to the streets. And 
so there are a number of violent incidents in 1765, in 1768, in 1770, and then in 1773, where the Boston crowd really turns out and intimidates customs officials or members of government. And these obviously have a big ripple effect. But the degree to which the more elite Sons of Liberty were driving those protests is a lot less clear. I think what you see are momentary alliances, but then also moments where the elites and working class Bostonians disagree about the best measures to pursue. So those leading figures then, are they specifically condemning acts of violence or are they maybe just like you say, taking both sides a little? Very often they will verbally condemn these acts of violence. But on the other hand, they may also have been saying to local officials, what do you expect, right? If you're going to push the people beyond what they're willing to accept, you, you know, you're going to see violence happening. So again, it's very difficult to say exactly what they're doing behind the scenes. They do tend to be uncomfortable with violence because what they don't want to see is total social upheaval. <laughs> you know, they, they want to maintain order and they know that having an orderly town of Boston is better politics, right, in front of England. But again, they may also not have been happy to kind of see that some of these customs officials were being pressured, that informants were being shunned, right, and other things that came from street protests of various kinds. Violence and animosity are brewing. You'll remember from last episode that in March 1770, the Boston Massacre had driven colonists' resentments to new heights. For instance, the famous silversmith Paul Revere, who will be very famous in the beginning of the American Revolution, he published a very, very widespread engraving of the Boston Massacre, which depicted the British redcoats just mercilessly shooting down British colonists who were doing nothing in this depiction. And so it showed, it sort of accelerated the vision of the violence being on the part only of British soldiers, when actually there was violence on, on both sides, really, in 1770. But Americans were the ones who were killed in the violence. And in Boston, this picture is intensifying. The Sons of Liberty in New York City or Philadelphia or New London, Connecticut, they held their own. There were active Sons of Liberty chapters in those towns. But for a variety of reasons, Boston gets the reputation for being the ringleader of all violence. This is how the British regard them. One reason is, is that just you have a very united population in Boston for the most part. But then it's also the central location for the customs officials. And you also have certain governing officials like Governor Francis Bernard and his successor, Governor Tom. Thomas Hutchinson, who just are writing constant complaints back to Parliament. And there are also some very visible incidents. The Stamp Act protests of August 1765, the Liberty Riot that takes place uh, over John Hancock's ship in 1768, the Boston Massacre. So Boston is kind of just at the forefront of the minds of the men of Parliament. Even though they understand that there are protests going on in other towns, Boston kind of becomes the focus uh, for one reason or another. And the truth is, the Bostonians were not always, you know, the best about holding up their ends of intercolonial boycotts and things like that. Sometimes New York and Philadelphia were really taking the lead. Nevertheless, in the minds of the British, the Bostonians were particularly obnoxious and they really fixate on some of the leaders within Boston as leading this movement. I think they distrusted the fact that a lot of Bostonians were religious dissenters, right? Uh, Congregationalists, members of independent churches. I think they remembered that those were exactly the kind of people who had led a revolt back in the 1600s under Oliver Cromwell. 
you know, in Connecticut, they had named streets after the men who had executed Charles I, right? And they had harbored some of the regicides in New England. So I think New England was often regarded as a kind of suspicious place back in Parliament in a way that was not as true of New York and Philadelphia. What do the colonies mean to Britain at this point in terms of their rebellions, the unrest they're seeing, the organisation they're seeing? Are they worried at this point? How are they characterising this across the Atlantic? I think that some forces in Parliament, and particularly some of the Whigs, Burke, who I mentioned before, they were worried. And in fact, they told many of the King's ministers, um, and especially their Tory rivals, that they were afraid that if this got completely out of hand, if they exercised a heavy hand of control and sovereignty, that they might end up making the resistance worse. And even hinted, you know, you might even cause an even worse situation. I'm not sure it was ever quite articulated as we'll lose the colonies altogether, but kind of hinting that the the problems would grow worse. So it was the subject of debate within parliament, debate within different ministers in the government. But that's because, you know, the colonies were both meaningful in a cultural way and the British had gained control by the mid-18th century over more and more colonial space in North America. They had, throughout the 18th century, kind of consolidated control over a larger portion. And in fact, some other areas of the colonies, they had imposed much more direct control over. So the royal governors controlled much more directly the power in some of the other colonies than they did in Massachusetts, which had held on to its greatest measure of this local control I talked about earlier. So it, it was very meaningful culturally, and it was also the subject of political debate. But what parliamentarians couldn't agree on was exactly what the solution was. So was the solution to maintaining control allowing the local control in the colonies to work itself out? Or was it cracking down and making it very, very clear that that kind of resistance and local control would not be acceptable? There's also the factor of King George III, who was... Um, you know, I quite jealous of royal privilege and very interested in control. So he was also influencing his ministers to crack down is probably too strong, but that this was a vision of the empire at that time that was important and he wished his prerogative to be felt. In 1773, amid these heightened resentments of many New England colonists and the need in Britain for colonial control, the tensions coalesced over the issue of tea. The Bostonians hear about the Tea Act in the fall of 1773, and Samuel Adams immediately smells a rat. I mean, he was influenced probably by arguments that were already being published in the middle colonies in New York and Philadelphia. But what he sees is, oh, this is actually going to reduce the cost of tea for American consumers. But that's even worse because it is now going to seduce Americans into buying tea from the East India Company for a lower price, which means acceding to the principle of paying taxes for which the Americans haven't given their consent. And so Samuel Adams is really outraged about this. And there are other problems with the Tea Act as well. It is propping up a monopoly company. And so a lot of Americans feared, oh, if we're going to be forced to accept direct trade with a monopoly on tea, what prevents Parliament from setting up other monopoly companies for all the other goods that we import from Great Britain? Maybe there'll be a monopoly on ceramics. Maybe there'll be a monopoly on certain kinds of textiles, right? Which means that eventually they will just be able to raise prices 
prices in addition to the British government raising more and more taxes. And so they really fear that British merchants and parliament are just going to suck the American colonies dry by pulling all of this money out of American colonists' pockets. And in Massachusetts, there was a kind of special grievance, which is that in 1772, parliament had decided that the money raised from the tea tax was going to pay for the salaries of certain government officials, certain judges and Governor Hutchinson. And so again, the very people who were tasked with enforcing the customs laws were now being paid from the collection of these customs revenues rather than being paid by the General Assembly, the, the Massachusetts House of Representatives, which, you know, when the Massachusetts House of Representatives is paying your salary, maybe you're more accountable to the people. When you're being paid from the British Treasury and the customs duties that it's collecting, now you're only answerable to London, right? And that strikes the Bostonians as very worrisome. So you've got these very real fears that are causing this sense of resentment and so on. Is there any sense of that in Britain? You know, is there any sense they should be rolling these policies back? Britain doesn't initially see that the Tea Act is going to be much of a controversy. They just see it as a bailout measure for the East India Company. Oh, we're going to make it easier for the East India Company to sell its tea directly to the American colonies. It'll be cheaper for the American colonies. We're going to hold on to the tax that we first laid down in 1767 because we want to uphold that tax and have it continue to be a little bit of a revenue generator. But they think all in all, this is going to be better for the American colonies. Why should they object? This is really more a measure about the East India Company than it is about the American colonies. So like, well, of course, we're going to maintain this. The East India Company is having revenue problems. This is going to enable them to offload some of their surplus tea to the American market. They don't foresee the degree of problems that this is going to cause. Next time on the Boston Tea Party Igniting a Revolution we'll delve into the Bostonian reaction to the Tea Act. So when the Bostonians hear that there is a shipment of tea coming to their town, and New York and Philadelphia and Charleston too, when these cities realize, okay, ships bearing tea are coming to our town, what are we going to do about it? We'll look at the arrival of the East India Company's ships. The three ships carrying the tea come into Boston Harbor and they are just sitting in the harbor with the tea, just kind of freighted with all its symbolic significance. And we'll arrive at the pivotal moment, the destruction of the tea. These three ships are coming sailing into the Boston Harbor, and it was this sense that this is the last straw. Many thanks to my guests for this episode. Benjamin Karp, Professor of History at Brooklyn College and the CUNY Graduate Centre, and the author of Defiance of the Patriots, The Boston Tea Party and the Making of America. Sarah Churchwell is Chair of Public Understanding of the Humanities and Professor of American Literature at the University of London. Sarah Purcell is Professor of History at Grinnell College, Iowa, and the author of books that include Sealed with Blood, War, Sacrifice and Memory in Revolutionary America. This episode was written and researched by me, Eleanor Evans, and produced by Sam Leal Green. Additional fact checks were by Gordon O'Sullivan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>